All right, well, my name is Kingsley. If you're visiting for the first time, welcome. Welcome. I, one of my favorite parts of the service is getting to stand here and just watch and listen for the two minutes. It's always really, it's a joy to be able to see people connecting with one another and to hear it. Uh, and, and so thank you for blessing me this way and encouraging my soul as we come to God's words uh, being preached and heard. Uh, we come to that point of our service where we take the time to read a portion of scripture together and to unpack its meaning for us today. And today we start a new series together, a series uh, in Isaiah called The God Who Restores. It's a sermon series that will explore the theme of restoration. And the reason why we're doing this is because in our last series, we focused a lot on the lost language of lament. And one common theme that can be found throughout all the Psalms we studied is the theme of longing for restoration, whether communal or personal restoration. As our church and city reopens and talks of restoration fills the air, we felt it would be timely, timely to explore this biblical theme as many of us have expressed feelings of disappointment and even disillusionment with how things have been progressing so far. Our new series is designed to help us see things from God's perspective. And given the moment we're in, we felt Isaiah 40 to 43 would be a fitting series to address our times. And so today's text is actually found in Isaiah chapter 40, verses 1 to 8. It's in the back of your bulletins. If you have a hard copy Bible, I invite you to open it up to that text as well. And I invite you to follow along. We're going to hear and explore the gospel today, according to Isaiah. And our sermon will be an overview of all the other sermons to come. And so I invite you to open your ears, open your eyes, and look to God's word with me. Help us with the reading of God's word today. Fill up. Isaiah chapter 40, verses 1 to 8. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries, in the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. A voice says, cry. And I said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass, and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades, when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks be to God. Let's bow in a word of prayer. God, we thank you for your word. And now we ask that as we study it together, meditate on it together, Lord, I ask that the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts would be pleasing to you. Give us the gift of illumination and help us to see the beauties of your gospel in this passage. We pray this in your most precious name. Amen. Amen. It's 586 BC. I want you to imagine that you're a young Israelite working in a foreign land under a foreign ruler in the capital city of Babylon. Harrowing news broke last week. Jerusalem, your hometown, is reduced to rubble. And the temple of your God, your spiritual home, your religious home, 
was just destroyed. The brightest and the best of your countrymen and women were forced to relocate in the first deportation 20 years ago and led en masse with nothing but a few bags and the clothes on your back. You too were forced to move in the second deportation after them. The government promised that your new life and your new normal would be better. They said new opportunities and new possibilities awaited you in Babylon. But here's the thing, it's been 11 years and life isn't anything like it was made out to be. You're in exile in a strange new world. You lost your close community, you lost your home, and now with Jerusalem and the temple destroyed, you lost your sense of identity. How would we feel? How would you feel? Frustrated? Anxious? Discouraged? Disillusioned? These words barely scratched the surface. And though our circumstances might be different, many of us actually can relate to the average Israelite in exile. Because with our city reopening, many of us find ourselves immersed in a strange new world as well. And talking to many of you in this church, I'm realizing that many of us are finding ourselves frustrated, anxious, discouraged, and disillusioned as the world we once knew, the life we once loved, and the freedoms we enjoyed continue to evade us in this new normal. We've lost time, opportunity, friends, family, our sense of home, our sense of community, and even our sense of identity. Like sojourners in a strange land, many of us can't help but feel like exiles. And Isaiah 40 today, Isaiah 40, verses 1 to 8 today, brings us good news. Because Isaiah 40 is God's message of hope to us. Anticipating Israel's grief in the past and anticipating ours, God wrote a message for all the exiles of all time. He wrote a message of comfort, a message of grace, a message we call the gospel. And as we look at Isaiah chapter 40, verses 1 to 8 today, my aim is simple. I want us to see the gospel. I want us to see how the gospel brings good news and comfort to us today and how the gospel calls us to follow after God. Those are my two aims today, and we're going to do this by exploring three things. Firstly, the rescue you never thought you needed. That's verses 1 to 2. The renewal you never expected, verses 3 to 5. And the road you need to choose, verses 6 to 8. So I'll repeat that again. The rescue you never thought you needed the renewal you never expected, and the road you need to choose. Let's look at the rescue you never thought you needed. Starting a series in the middle of a a book is not ideal uh, because there's a lot of context that needs to be brought up, that we need to be brought up to speed with. And we're starting right in the middle of chapter 40. Uh, There's 66 chapters in Isaiah, so I'm gonna do my best to recap the first 39 chapters for you. In chapters 1 to 39, what we see here is God repeatedly telling his people not to cheat on him and not to turn to neighboring nations and gods for help in times of unrest and uncertainty. Instead, people should trust in him and be faithful to him lest judgment fall on them. And as history would have it, the people fail to obey God's word. If you were to look to chapter 39, we would see Isaiah prophesy of Israel's exile. God was going to discipline his people. How? By banishing them from the land and banishing them from his presence. Turn the page to chapter 40. Here we see something interesting happen. The theme shifts 
in Isaiah chapters, uh, between Isaiah chapters 1 to 39 and chapters 40 to 66. The theme shifts from judgment to restoration. An ever gracious and ever kind, God leaves a series of future messages filled with hope for the exiles to cling to in their dark days ahead. That's all of chapter 40, all the way to the end of chapter 66. A future message addressing the exiles. We see the first message in verse 1. I invite you to look with me to your bulletins or your Bibles. It writes, Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry out to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. What's interesting here is that he's writing in the present tense to people far into the future declaring to his people that their suffering and exile would end before it begins. God says, I'm going to rescue you. I'm going to restore you. Commentators can't help but pause at God's grace here. See, because despite Israel's sin, God did not abandon his people. He did not abandon the people who abandoned him. He would still call Israel, his wayward people, my people. And he would call himself their God. He assures them that their sins would be forgiven and even pardoned. Now, I know some of you, I know what you're thinking. You're looking at verse 2 and you can't help but be a little distracted by the last part of verse 2. God said something about receiving double for all their sins. How many of you were perplexed by what that meant? I mean, is it saying what I think it's saying? On the surface, it looks like God's saying he's the type of God that dishes out more punishment than fits the crime. Is is that what's happening here? On the surface, it might seem that way. But in actuality, it's the opposite. Here's what I mean. In Hebrew, the phrase double for something is a rhetorical way, not a literal way, a rhetorical way of saying more than enough. Picture God looking to Israel who deserved more punishment and saying to them, you have received from my hand more than enough of your punishment. Enough, enough, you've received enough. Although they deserve more. Think of a, think of a, a parent with a child who deserves punishment for something they misbehaved and they did wrong. And that parent going to the child and say, you should probably have a longer time, my, time out You probably should be disciplined more, but you know what? That's enough. That's enough. You receive double for your sins. This highlights kindness, not cruelty, as God cuts the people's discipline short in favor of mercy. Now, as we reflect on that, we might think, wow, that's that's wonderful. (laughs) That's wonderful for Israel, but how does that help me? How does that encourage me in my time of exile, my feelings of exile? This is when we have to take a step back, take a step back and look at the overarching theme of the Bible. And if we do that, what you'll see is that one of the common themes that gets routinely repeated is the theme of exile. In fact, Israel's exile that we read of here is only one case of many that we see in the Bible. It's important we see this because if we understand this repetition, we'll be able to understand why we feel the way we feel and how to make sense of what we feel. Where do you think the first case of exile is found in the Bible? It's actually three pages into the book of Genesis. In Genesis chapter three, God created Adam and Eve. 
and he gave a command to Adam and Eve. He said to them in his kindness, you can eat of all the trees, all the fruit in the garden, but there's actually one tree you can't eat from, the tree of knowledge, uh, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, excuse me. Now, what do you think happened in Genesis chapter three? Adam and Eve did the exact opposite of what God told them to do. They grabbed the forbidden fruit and they sunk their teeth into what was not theirs. And the consequence? They were kicked out of the garden and separated from God. What's that theme? Exile. Exile. The Bible's repeated theme of exile is important for us to recognize because it teaches us something about the nature of the world we live in, uh, pointing to a deeper spiritual problem that affects all of us, regardless of where you are in life. The exiles we read in the Bible and the senses of exile we feel today actually are windows into the bigger universal problem facing humanity. What's that problem? We're all spiritual exiles, separated from God because of sin. And the punishment that we deserve, the just punishment we deserve, is eternal separation from God. The Bible in the New Testament calls this punishment hell. This eternal punishment is hell. And you might not have realized it, and you might not even recognize it, but all our senses of exile and alienation point to that spiritual reality. I mean, let's think about it. Have you ever wondered why your personal feelings of alienation in this season can sometimes feel like hell on earth? spoke to one congregant recently. Those were the words he described as tears flowed down his eyes. He felt like he was experiencing hell on earth. The reason why we feel this way is because it's a a shadow of the spiritual reality that's awaiting us if God doesn't do something about our problem. And here's the good news of the gospel. God, in his grace, does something about that problem. God, in his grace, doesn't abandon us just like he didn't abandon Israel. God, in his grace, is gracious towards us just like he did with Israel. How did he do it? He sent his son. He sent his son, Jesus, to bridge the chasm that separates us from God and paying the penalty for our sins on the cross, Jesus experienced the full alienation of God's wrath reserved for sinners like you and me so that we might eventually one day be restored to him going through hell for us and drinking the wrath of God, his righteous judgment against sin, Jesus purchased our pardon with his precious life. And you know what's more stunning about the gospel? It doesn't just end with Jesus dying. No, he didn't stay dead. No, three days after he died, he rose again from the grave. And in his resurrection, he promised to come back to make all things new. And when he comes back, he's gonna make this world new. And he's gonna welcome us into the full presence of God. He fixes, he deals with our spiritual problem. What are the implications? Christians, we'll start with you. For starters, the gospel gives us new lenses to see our circumstances through, like like spectacles or glasses, to see the world in clear day of light. This gospel helps us understand why we feel the way we feel. It reminds us that our exile is only temporary if you're in Christ, and that something greater will come. 
It serves as a reminder that we need to persevere and wait on God to return and restore all things in its rightful place. And it also serves as a humbling reminder of what we've been eternally saved from in Christ. In Christ, the horrors of hell, if you are in Christ, if you believe Christ and you're a follower of Christ, the horrors of hell are silenced as we rest in our Savior's grace. The final implication, the last implication, is it serves as motivation to encourage us to bring the gospel of comfort to those who are still spiritually alienated from God. If you look back at the text in verse one, you'll see the words comfort and speak tenderly written in a way that communicates the imperative in our English translations. In, in Hebrew, it's actually in the imperative form. There's different ways you can spell the words that indicate this. And what's more interestingly, uh, what's more interesting, excuse me, is that the, the number is plural. God is not just talking to Isaiah here when he's commanding us to comfort and to speak tenderly to people. He's commanding everybody who would hear this message to comfort and to pass this message along. We're to share this wonderful message, in other words, to anyone who would hear it, anyone who would receive it. Christian, this is the implications for us. What about for those of you who are investigating the faith? Our text is challenging you to consider how your personal feelings of exile might actually be a window, a window into the deeper parts of your souls, into the human condition of your heart. You probably never looked at your grief this way, but here's what the gospel has to say to you. Your circumstances point you to the rescue you never thought you needed. Underneath the top layers of your alienation, is a spiritual alienation that can only be fixed by grace. And the good news of the gospel is that by God's grace, Jesus did just that. This is the good news of the gospel. And this is the good news of our first point, the rescue you never thought you needed. Now, as we consider our second point, the renewal you never expected, here we explore how Israel was to respond and how we, we are to respond to this grace. Uh, let's look to verse three, okay? A voice cries, it says, in the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall be level and the rough places a plain, and the glory of our Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Prepare the way of the Lord, God says. If you were to look at the footnotes in your hard copy Bibles, if you have one, you'd see that prepare can also be rendered clear. Clear the way for God. On uh, February 6, 1952, the streets of England were cleared for Her Majesty the Queen Elizabeth II's coronation. I don't imagine any of us knew that day off by heart. But if you watch The Crown, which is a wonderful Netflix uh, series, I encourage you to watch it. In season one, episode five, we get a glimpse of what it was like for people to prepare the way for the queen. Being the first coronation ever fully televised, millions of common citizens across the Commonwealth were invited to participate in a way never seen before. In preparation for the Queen's procession and ascension, millions of people jumped on the task of clearing the streets and cleaning the roads. Hundreds and thousands of decorations were hung in preparation for her procession, and millions of people rushed. They rushed to purchase their first television ever because they had the opportunity 
to watch the ceremony, the sacred ceremony at at home. Out of love and out of delight, out of duty and respect, the people cleared away and made space for their queen in their streets, in their homes, and as they watched at home, most importantly, they made space in their hearts. Let's look back at verse three and see what we are to do for God. Hear these words, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up. Every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Conjure the image, conjure the image of taking mountains as high as the Andes and leveling them flat. And then taking a valley as low as Death Valley in California and raising it up to sea level. The Bible says we have to move mountains and valleys and plains in preparations for him. Now, is Isaiah talking about literal, physical moving of dirt and turf? No. He's talking about something spiritual. If you look at the New Testament, you see John the Baptist declare these words. We see what he's actually declaring. He's calling us to repent, to be renewed. Drawing on the image of cosmic royal procession, God is calling us not only to welcome in Jesus as our king over us, but even more, looking at the ecological transformation that's taking place, God is calling us to undergo a mind-renewing, soul-renewing, soul-transforming, heart-reforming process of renewal for him. The scriptures are saying here, it's not enough to say that God is your king. Our lives need to reflect it also. This is how we're to respond to him. This is how we're to respond to his grace. We don't, believe, we don't just believe that he saved us. We give our lives to the Savior. And just to be very clear, this is not done to earn his grace. This is done in response to his grace. You might ask, what does this renewal entail? Well, if we can summarize it in one word, the imagery here in Isaiah would say that renewal entails that everything needs to change. What you love, how you think, how you live your life, the way you look at money, sex, power, control, priorities, anxiety, self-identity, every aspect of your human heart, every aspect of your human mind, and every aspect of your soul, all of that needs to be restored. All of that needs to be reformed. All of that needs to be submitted to God in obedience to God. This means the culture doesn't get to tell us and decide what we think. Society doesn't get to determine what's right or wrong or what we value. We, we don't get to decide how to live. This is no small reformation that the scriptures is calling us to. The magnitude of this renewal is monumental. God will have all of us as he reigns over us. He will have all of us. There is no other way. If he's to be your savior, He's to be your Lord and King. You might wonder, why? why? Why is this renewal so important? There's the personal aspect, which we talked about, but there's a communal aspect as well. Look with me to verse five. It writes, for the glory of God will be revealed and all flesh might see it together. 
In undergoing this renewal, we display for the world the glory and radiance of God. We show off to the world the kind of God that God is, the holy God, the righteous God, the gracious God, the glorious God. Like those little televisions that people rush to purchase and display and see the queen's radiance in her coronation. So we, through our renewed lives, display God's magnificence. This begs some honest questions, painful questions, even questions I didn't want to ask myself when I was reading this sermon. But if this is all true and this gospel is demanding this of us, we need to look inwardly and ask, what are some of the areas in your life that you're reluctant to give to God today? What are the areas of your life that you don't want God to touch? And Christians, I'm not just talking to those investing in faith. This is for all of us because far too often many of us are happy with God saving us, but we're not happy with God telling us how to live. And so, what are the things that you don't want to lay down before God? Many of us know that the Bible has a lot to say about money, sex, and all the other stuff I mentioned, but we have a way of ignoring it, dismissing it, leaving our Bibles in our backpacks at home after church. We don't want God telling us how we should spend our money, what we can do with our bodies, what our priorities should be. Isaiah chapter 40 is saying, if God's going to be your savior, he's got to be your Lord and King also. This is the only fitting response, and there is no other way. You cannot have one without the other. So look inwardly and ask yourselves, what are the things that I don't want to give to you, God? Maybe it's a relationship or the way you spend your time. As we look at chapter 40, verses 3 to 5, we see that God is not only calling us to count the cost of following him, but to lay it all down in submission to him. This is the renewal you never expected. At this time, we come to our final point. This is the road you need to choose. Here we find ourselves at a crossroad. You've heard Isaiah's gospel today, and now you need to answer the question, what will you do and who will you put your trust in? Will you ultimately trust in yourself or humanity to help you through this life, or will you turn to God? Will you trust in God? Let's look at verse 6. A voice says, cry. And I said, what shall I cry? Here God says, all flesh, that's humanity, is like grass. And all its beauty, the best of humanity, is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fade when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass, the scripture says. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our God will stand forever. Who will you trust? You may be tempted to think that we can fix our problems in life, but the reality is we can't. We're frail, we're transient and broken, and we need spiritual solutions to fix our spiritual problems. The scriptures say we're like grass and flowers that wither and flutter in the wind. Why? Because our best solutions themselves are transient like us. I think many of us, as we've been enduring this pandemic, have begun to re- recognize this. Many of us have tried to cope with our sense of exile in, this, in the season of life. 
We try to compartmentalize the pain by running from it or by uh, turning to self-made or man-made solutions. Uh, we leaned on technology to overcome the problem of loneliness. We've leaned on medications to overcome our anxieties. But if we're honest with ourselves, even these good things, creative things, don't address the deeper issues. Software, software updates and booster shots, they don't touch our spiritual problems. We still feel the sense of exile, the sense of alienation. So where do we go? If the answer's not with us, where is it then? Who do we trust? Where do we go? Verse 8. We go to the Word of God. The Word of God is the ultimate solution that addresses our deep spiritual problem. For the Word of God is the only thing that can breathe new life into our lives. If you're to open up your Bibles and flip to 1 Peter chapter 1, you look down to verse 23 and 25, you'll see Peter quote Isaiah chapter 40, verses 6 to 8. And in quoting Isaiah 40, he writes, For you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable seed, through the living and enduring word of God. The seed is the word of God. He goes on to write, For all people are like grass. And all their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord endures forever. He goes on to write, and this is the word, this is the word that was preached to you. It's the word that's preached to you in Isaiah chapter 40. It's this gospel word that gives you life. By hearing God's word, believing God's word, and letting God's word shape the way you live your life, God recreates us, he renews us, and he will begin to restore us. You might ask at this point, well, Kingsley, how can you be so confident? How can you be so confident that God's word won't fail? How can you prove that God's word isn't all talk? I mean, our politicians are all talk. Society's all talk. The reason why we can say that God's word isn't all talk is because history would show us that God's word didn't just talk. No. God's word walked the walk. Centuries after Isaiah 40, John chapter 1 writes that the word of God became flesh and he walked among us. And as you keep reading John chapter 1, we see that this word, this word of God made flesh is none other than Jesus Christ. And he's the Jesus Christ that I proclaimed to you at the beginning of this message. And he's the Jesus Christ that you see in Isaiah 40. He's the Jesus you read about in the New Testament. He's the Jesus that came to show us that God's word would stay true every moment of your life. God's, wo- God's word fulfilled in Christ. We see in Jesus Christ that God would be for us and not against us, that God would never leave us nor forsake us. And if you ever find yourself doubting this, if you ever find yourself doubting whether God's word is trustworthy, look to Jesus. Look to Jesus and ask yourself, if God was faithful here, why would he not be faithful everywhere else? To use the language of Romans chapter 8, which makes this exact argument 
The Apostle Paul says, if God did not spare his own son, but gave him up for you also, how will he with him not freely give us all things which are good for us? If you're going to walk this road of faith, you've got to believe that Jesus and his word is true. You've got you to let Jesus' word renew you every aspect of your life. What you love, how you think, how you live. Wherever you are on your journey of faith, Isaiah encourages you to count the cost of following God, but not just count the cost. He encourages you to take the road that will lead to your everlasting restoration. As we conclude, we explore today the rescue you never thought you needed. We explore the renewal you never expected and the road you need to take. Isaiah 40, chapters 1 chapter 40, verses 1 to 8, excuse me, is God's message of comfort to the exiles of all time. In the gospel is God's grace described to you, revealed to you. And in this gospel is a message of hope and a message of new life for you. As we think about the weeks to come, the subsequent subsequent sermons in our series are going to explore some of these things we talked about in the gospel with more detail. I'm going to look at them through Isaiah 40 to 43. And my hope is that as you come back in the following weeks and you continue to read with us and study with us, you might learn to find hope from Isaiah. And more importantly, more importantly, in these days as exiles, we would find hope in the God of Isaiah. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word and we thank you for this message of hope. And we now pray as one Puritan preacher once prayed, help us to take every word as spoken for ourselves. When the word thunders against sin, would we think you mean my sin? When you press any duty upon us, we would think you intend me in this. Help us today, wherever we are in our journey, of faith to bring your word home into our hearts and to apply it as medicine for our souls. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. At this time, we have a few moments uh, for Q&A. This is one of my favorite parts of of, of Sunday service and preaching. I'm going to invite Ryan to come on up with the questions. And, oh, there's no questions. Okay, well, um, I'm sad. Uh, Okay, well... um, that's okay. That's okay. Um, okay, H- how do I transition this well now? So since we don't have uh, a time for Q&A, uh, what we'll do is we'll do a time of reflection. Uh, it's important. Uh, we, 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 we talked about the scriptures and needing to take this seriously. So I want you to take a moment to quietly reflect on the sermon and reflect on the passage. What is it that God is calling you to reflect on? Is it the first part, the rescue you never thought you needed? Is it the renewal that you never expected? Or is it considering the road that you need to take? Take a moment to quietly and privately reflect on this. And afterwards, uh, worship team, if you'd like to come on up, maybe a couple of, sil- couple of minutes of silence, uh, you can lead us in our song of reflection, okay? So please take a moment to bow your heads and silently reflect.